Part 3. Reframing the Narrative. Chapter 17. Apostasy. From Total Eclipse to Wilderness Refuge. In articulating the Restoration's relationship to other faith traditions, careful and charitable navigation is essential. Twin imperatives impel us in two directions, but in both directions danger lurks. A Scylla and a Charybdis, each inviting disaster. One imperative is to recognize the essential goodness and inspired insights of those across the faith spectrum. As Brigham Young preached, men naturally love and admire righteousness, justice, and truth more than they do evil. Goodness and inspiration transcend all categories and faith traditions. The other imperative is to clarify what developments in doctrine and what abandoned plain and precious things account for the awful woundedness Nephi referenced and which necessitated the restoration. The twin dangers are, on the one hand, to ignore the vast array of God-touched figures across time and culture who contributed their share of light and truth, and, on the other, to downplay, in the interest of interfaith bridge-building, very real corruptions and changes to such an extent that we render the restoration superfluous at worst, or a mild corrective at best. In other words, charity and humility require that we actively seek to discover and celebrate truth wherever we find it in the Christian past and present. Receive truth, let it come from where it may, was Mormonism's grand fundamental principle, Joseph said. And commitment to the value of the Restoration requires that we actively seek to clarify and fully appreciate the distinctive work of repair and reform that the Restoration was intended to accomplish. These twin sensibilities were commended by Peter when he directed disciples in how they should defend their faith. Be ready to explain the reason for the hope that is in you, he said, with meekness and a wholesome, serious caution. One principle that is helpful in this regard is articulated by Diana Bass. She notes that in narrating the Christian past, the usual story is that of Big C Christianity. Christ, Constantine, Christendom, Calvin, and Christian America. And we would add creeds and crusades. There is much to lament and even to condemn in this history, as Bass readily acknowledges. However, her point is that Big C Christianity is not the important entity and creeds are not what define Christian practice or the character of Christian believers. She invokes a principle, sensus fidelium, or the natural wisdom of the faithful, to contrast official dogma with real-world belief. A historian of the Reformation concurs, religion as practiced even by the self-consciously orthodox was not necessarily the same as religion that was officially recommended. Our experience has borne this out. One is hard-pressed to find an average Baptist who has even read the Westminster Confession, an Anglican who knows the content of the 39 Articles, or a lay Catholic who knows the difference between homo usius, 
and homoousios, though conformity to those formulae and distinctions were matters of life and death at various times in the Christian past. As a Methodist theologian once told us, in explaining his personal divergence from one stipulated dogma, we really don't pay much attention to the creeds. On the other hand, one can live in blithe indifference to, or in ignorance of, one's historical foundations and still be profoundly shaped by them in ways large and small. That conviction underlies this book's central thesis. Belief shapes culture, which shapes language, which continues to shape culture. The actual process is messier, non-linear, but that's the main point. So in tracing some key moments and features in Christian thought, we are not creating a straw man. Our purpose has been to emphasize key doctrines that were spiritually and morally catastrophic, doctrines that, regardless of their lesser modern authority among a plurality of Christians, held great sway at one time and linger on in their subtle influence today. Neither is an appraisal of creedal formulations an indictment of any believers then or now. The Lord himself referred to Christian creeds as an abomination. And yet the Book of Mormon explicitly absolves the generality of Gentiles from blame for their woundedness and blindness that results from the loss of the Gospel's plain and precious parts. In fact, and this takes us to our next point, the Lord made clear to Joseph Smith that beauty and truth persisted through the centuries that intervened between the crucifixion and the first vision. And that pattern, which Joseph came to recognize, gave definition to what we may have poorly understood by the words apostasy, restoration, and church. Joseph Smith seems to have come gradually to his understanding of the task and meaning of the restoration. One glimpse into his mind may be found in a revision to a revelation he produced in 1833. The backstory begins, however, in 1795. That was the year the Scottish minister Alexander Fraser published his popular work, Key to the Prophecies, which included an interpretation of a passage from the twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation. This was a chapter of immense interest to Protestants, because it was read by them, and would also be read by Joseph Smith, as a prophecy of what they were calling the Great Apostasy. The chapter relates how a woman is confronted by a dragon who led one-third of the stars of heaven to fall. Under this threat, the woman fled into the wilderness. Adam Clark, the commentator upon whom Joseph most relied, identified the woman described in that chapter's allegory as the Christian church, as did most Protestant writers. And so we have, in brief, the history of the original Christian church, which is threatened by Satan and consequently disappears. The apostasy, in other words. Fraser, however, saw a silver lining in his reading of Revelation chapter 12. For the church in the wilderness, according to the words of prophecy, is fed by the word and spirit of God nourished for a time, in John's words. This nourishment took place, Fraser wrote, without the outward ordinances, which were defiled, it is true. But otherwise, in Fraser's vision, the true Church of Christ is rendered invisible, 
protected, nourished, and preserved during these centuries. Here we find a significantly different understanding of Christian history than the one long dominant in Latter-day Saint culture. Rather than the total loss of truth, the absence of all light and inspiration, we find in Fraser's reading a story of survival, underground, at the margins, in the wilderness. What a marvellously expansive, wonderfully open-ended story this presents us with. We have here a vision of a dispersed community of the honest in heart, nurtured, fed, inspired, and instructed by the Spirit during their long sojourn in the wilderness. Evidence suggests that Joseph Smith was inspired by Fraser's reading. Between 1833 and 1835, Joseph modified the language of a revelation to mirror Fraser's point. In 1833, in a first reference to giving the Restoration institutional form, a revelation referred to Joseph's assignment to work a reformation and establish the Lord's Church. While that language was not terribly specific, it did suggest modifying an existing set of beliefs, reformation, while building something new, establish. Two years later, however, Joseph significantly reframed this revelation, giving to the principle of restoration a very different modus operandi and purpose. He did so under the apparent inspiration of Fraser's prophecy and even his language. Fraser had anticipated the future day when, after its exile in the wilderness, the universal church shall again become visible as a community, extended over the whole earth, clear as the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible as an army with banners, borrowing that imagery from Song of Solomon. In reworking the revelation for the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph confirmed Fraser's point, that the church would emerge from a wilderness exile and use Fraser's precise language from the Song of Solomon. The promised day had come, Joseph declared, and we were now in this the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. The work of restoration would require a gathering, but more than scattered Israel would need to be reassembled.